Welcome to Stacey on the Right, the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today with our guest. We have Dave Maschio. He's an opinion columnist for USA Today. Dave and I have been chatting uh, in interviews at different jobs that I've had on radio for years now, and I'm so excited to have him back today to discuss uh, what is a hot topic this year, which is people getting canceled. Dave, thank you for joining the podcast. It's great to be here. I'm glad to talk to you again. You know, I I saw your, I was, you know, kind of scrolling through, stalking you on Twitter, and you'd retweeted this story from theankler.com, and it's entitled Michael Wolf on Random House's Cancellation of Norman Mailer. It's an exclusive, the author's white Negro essay helps sink a book set for 2023. Now, this is a big deal because, first of all, it's not easy to get published by a publisher. It's not easy to um, to do that. Now, you know, this is if you've already written a book, it's a little easier. But the fact is, every time a publisher commits to a book with you, it's it's a process and going through it is something that if, if you've not written a book, you don't know what it's like. And if you've written one, you completely understand it. This is a an interesting story because the cancellation is because of an essay from 1957. Definitely a different time for us as a country than now, right? Definitely a different time. We've changed so much in terms of race relations since then and in terms of language. You know, his use of Negro in the title of that that essay was on the progressive end of things at the time when so many people used much more derogatory language towards blacks. And routinely. I mean, at the order of the day in 1957 was the N-word, which, you know, it's so interesting that we say the N-word now. We're not even allowed to utter it unless we're, um, you know, rappers or musicians. They have carte blanche. Um, members of the black community have carte blanche. I, I'm black, but I don't use the word because, you know, force of habit as, as someone who's in broadcasting, if there's something you say in your private life a lot, you it will make it onto your broadcast. So, you know, the N-word, not using the other term, the full word. But th- this is this is something that I think, are we losing the historical accuracy here as a, as a people when we can't recognize, or I should say, these individuals at this publishing house can't realize that in 1957, the N-word was in common usage and... The word Negro was the proper term as African-American is today. So do they just not know this? You know, it's it's hard to say. I think intellectually, knowing some of the people who are purveyors of cancel culture, I think intellectually they, they know that. But there's a certain zeal for purity, for perfection in their mind, and they'd rather not be exposed to anything in in the past that doesn't hold to the standards of today. You know, what's funny about that is that means they're missing out on some really great literature. Cause I, I always refer back to this book. Um, it's called and the women of the club and I bought it for, it might've been a dollar or $2 on the section of the library where you, they, they sell books that are, they're not going to keep. Right. And it's this big, thick, heavy novel. Um, it has a, like a buff colored, like a tan, almost paper bag colored, cover on it. And it says, and the women of the club. And if you open it, it says it's a book about a group of women who are in a book club and their lives over from when they're young women, when they first meet all the way until, you know, basically they're dropping like flies of old age. 
And so I get sucked into this book and I'm, I'm literally, I can't put it down. I'm carrying it with me everywhere. And it's heavy. I could, it, it would make a really great gosh. Like if I was a murderer, this would be my tool of choice, but I'm carrying it around and reading it all the time. My husband's like that book again. I'm like, well, I, I, if I don't read it all the time, I'll never get done with it. Look how thick it is. And he and I are laughing about it. And I get to a place in the book where the people in the book are using the N word to describe someone they've just seen. And it's not like one uses it and then the other one says, oh my gosh, what'd you just say? The one uses it, the other one uses it to refer to the same person and they go back and forth like this for a little bit. And at that moment, I was like, what is happening here? And then it hit me. That's why they put the book for sale. You know, they get a dollar or two out of it because it has the N word in it and they don't want it on the shelves in the library. And then I thought to myself, I'm too deep into this. I have to know what happens to these characters. I can't let this go. I'm not going to stop reading it because of the N-word usage. And then I go back to the front of the book and I look again to when it was written. I look, you know, at the author. I, you know, use my phone to look up a few things. And I realized this is the way it was back then. I'm literally, it's a, it's a snapshot of history when this book is set. And part of the thing that was so fascinating about it was the setting that it was set decades before I was around that. But this is the way they talk to each other. So I, I forged ahead and kept reading it. It's still to this day one of my favorite fiction books that I've ever read. But more than that, that context actually gave me a, a deeper understanding of who these people were at the time because this is the way they lived and this was their reality. If this continues on, Dave, the the cancellation of individuals who've written things like this and the removal of those writings – how will anyone ever know what it was really like in America during the times that, you know, unfortunately we had segregation and then before that slavery? I don't think you can hold those two ideas in your head at the same time to really understand the past and the gravity of, you know, the sins against black people of our country and at the same time have this cancel culture where anything that offends today's standards is immediately obliterated from our consciousness. Um, you know, I'm trying to, to remember, it's escaping me at the moment, but Norman Mailer's essay didn't exist in, in a vacuum. There was a famous response to it by, I want to say, by James Baldwin, but I may have that, uh, that took his arguments apart. And the importance of, of reading them both together is clear. You can't read one without the other. So when you obliterate one offensive thing, you know, there's all kinds of connections to the rest of our culture around it that get obliterated with it. Um, You know, it's a dangerous approach to culture. And what really strikes me is that, and, you know, I don't know how good the sourcing is on this, but the reporting that I've seen is that the reason this book was canceled is an objection from a junior editor. And it's amazing the cultural influence of really young people who don't have a broader perspective. They come out of college, they're in their first or their second job, and suddenly they have this power over our culture, and it's really dangerous. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and say it, because I think, you know, over the years that we've chatted, I found you to be very judicious, and you are careful in your... Um, your assessments of people, you know, specifically. And that indicates a kind of kindness that I deeply respect, but I don't have a ton of it for myself. I just am a straight shooter and I can't help it. And it actually has served me well. I really feel like we have given so much power 
to people who don't have enough life experience to barely keep themselves clean after using the bathroom. And they're making huge, momentous decisions about what we get to read, what kind of culture we get to live in, the kind of influences they're going to, uh, you know, basically chart the direction for who we are as a people. We will be dumbed down and completely ignorant of history and unable to make the leaps that are necessary for a culture such as our own, complex um, and very, we've had these not just touchstones, but moments where we as a people have decided together in unison to shift. And we can't do that anymore if we don't have an accurate view and understanding of what our history is. I think there's, there's also, there's an interlocking set of cultural practices that are going on right now that makes us even more, even more dangerous. Like one example is, you know, warnings you're given before you're exposed to something in the classroom that might be upsetting, trigger warnings, I guess they're they're called. So the things that do survive the cancel culture come with trigger warnings. So you can avoid even more of our history if you choose to, or if you, you think you're really sensitive. And I don't want to make too much of individual examples of these things happening, but I've read that it's industry-wide and it's infecting industry after industry. And in book publishing, it's gone particularly far in children's books where, you know, another example is with contemporary fiction authors, um, books are being canceled because the author is not of the same race or sexual orientation or whatever as the characters in the book. And you can only write about what you are. And even beyond the past, that impoverishes us today because, you know, one of the most important aspects of empathy is understanding what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes or trying to understand what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. And literature used to do that. And if we can't do that today, you know, where are we? And it's particularly upsetting that it's in children's literature that this is happening because that empathy is really what you want children to be learning. Yeah, well, empathy and also the ability to absorb something that might be offensive and then to place it in its proper context. So, you know, this is not something that I need to go out and make signs at Kinko's and protest. This is an article, an essay, an opinion piece from 1957. So it may be kind of horrifying to me that people thought in this way or use this kind of language but it is what it is. So what can I take from it? We, the, these individuals are not calm enough to actually have that experience. And that, that is the hallmark of being an adult, to being, being able to hear something that you're like, wow, so that's offensive, and not lose your stuffing over it. it's, and it's not just hearing offensive things, but you know, there's a whole category of experiences in life that are hard for us. You know, the first time your boss tells you that you did a bad job and you need to work harder or better when your when your spouse tells you, you know, you're falling down on the relationship job and you have to have some conversations about where your relationship is going. There's hard things we have to do in, in life. And if we take away so many hard things out of young people's lives and you, you don't build up the strength to deal with other stuff, if that makes sense. It does. You're, you're talking about resilience that um, for, for most of us, we had to start basically experiencing or or building resilience as children because we had parents who would tell us, you know, the truth about ourselves. 
And even though we didn't want to hear it, we were, you know, upset by what they'd said, we would just deal with it and move on. And so over time, you know, and we're not talking about abuse here, we're talking about just, you know, regular criticism, being told no, um, being forced to work hard, being forced to absorb you know, things that you, this isn't my favorite. I don't, you know, I actually don't want to spend time with these family members, but, you know, hanging out and spending time doing things you don't want to do. Um, without these things, we become, we're basically like snails without the shell, right? Pro, you know, easily irritated and almost easily killed because the shell protects and we, you have to build that shell. You're, the resilience you're talking about is like the shell that keeps us alive, protects us. Yeah, and it makes me worried for my own kids. I have two young kids right now, five and seven, and they're coming into a world, and it's not just on the the left. I worry about, you know, there's this whole controversy going on in Texas right now about they're reviewing the literature in in all of the high schools and middle schools in Texas on sexuality and racial issues and other topics. And... I'm not worried that my kids are going to be exposed to porn in school. I worry that they're not going to be able to have access to all the information that they want and need. And with this Texas situation, you know, it just reeks of book burning. And I think it's the mirror image of this cancel culture. And I think our society is becoming broadly more intolerant of anything that offends our sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah, there it, it, there is intolerance, and I I agree. Some of the proving that we do with our kids, you know, to toughen them up a little bit, it's not like we're saying, "Hey, I want to toughen my kids up." We're we're parenting them and doing uh, the best job that we can to ensure that our kids have the possibility of having a strong footing um, in the future. But we need the assistance of the individuals who are teaching them. You know, right? We want mm-hmm. we want them to have that additional, I just remember, you know, having sweet, nice teachers. And I remember having teachers who basically, it was like a firing squad, you walk in and you know, everybody was, it was open season on everybody. And the only people who could escape were individuals who showed a great amount of effort, and really performed well under everything. Um, And so that was tough. And people would talk about that teacher, and you know, they had a reputation. But the fact is, you came out of that class, tougher, better able to handle almost anything. Um, we, our kids will miss out on that. I, I share your concern that kids are not going to be toughened up by teachers, which the teacher is really good because as a parent, there's only so tough you can be because you're their parent and you love them. Teachers don't necessarily love your kids. They have a, a goal to educate them or to teach them topical matter or to, you know to put them through their paces. And they do that well because they're not their parents. They're not their aunt or uncle or granny. They do it well because they're an outsider. Does the rebellion against standardized testing fit into this category? You know, I read a lot about colleges getting rid of requiring standardized tests to get in and school districts being upset about the amount of testing that the federal government requires. And that occurs to me to be one of those hard things where, you know, you get an evaluation of yourself in a cold, hard hard to argue with number. And, you know, it's another example of of a hard thing that we're purging from our society. We've wandered far away from Norman Mailer here, but, you know, I think it's all all of a piece. We're trying to make life so easy when life is hard. 
Yeah, life is hard. But um, there, you're right. We we've wandered away from Norman Mailer, but it's his story is central to what we're discussing because he actually comes from a time, you know, when he wrote that piece. It's it's a time where life was demonstrably more difficult in America, and people were far more likely to be brutally honest. Right there was there wasn't such a sense of decorum that nonsense was allowed to flourish. And I think uh, everything we've touched on today is these are examples of nonsense flourishing. You know, the, the, the backlash against standardized testing, the fact is standardized tests are hard. Um, so what, what they've done is a lot of parents have taken the you know, extraordinary measure of getting their kids tutoring and making sure that their kids are working hard on you know, knowing how to take the test, like the, the, uh, the elements of test taking. But that doesn't change the fact that you can still do well on standardized tests without having all of that coaching if you apply yourself to studying the content during the school year, right? So there, that's the other thing. You can either, you can do both, you can do either or. That's the hard work that people aren't willing to do. And so there's a backlash against standardized testing. I don't agree with it at all. I think it's, it's a sign of weakness that we're saying, don't test these students because they don't do well on standardized tests. It's nonsensical. It is. I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, what's the name of the activist who has the effort to get parents to let their kids play outside alone, uh, to play in the park alone? Her name is escaping me at the moment, but a really smart lady. And, you know, even in my in my own neighborhood, my kids are allowed to play outside. And we had some new neighbors move in, and we were so excited. They had kids of similar ages. And their kids aren't allowed to play outside. So we have two kids here and three kids there, and they're just hundreds of feet apart, and they can't play together because, you know, parents are worried about something happening to them outside. It's just, it's tragic. Now, are you, are you talking about playing outside in between y'all's houses? Like, yeah, yeah. Within view of the homes? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not talking about parks blocks away. So my seven-year-old son rides all through the neighborhood on his bike. He knows his way around pretty well by now. But, yeah, they're not allowed to play outside between the houses in the cul-de-sac that we're both on. You know, you buy a house on a cul-de-sac so your kids can play outside in safety without having to worry about cars driving by. And you, you... It's not just the cars. It's because it's a cul-de-sac and you can literally yell out. And the cul-de-sac, I don't know how because it doesn't seem like it would do that, but the cul-de-sac creates almost a... It's like a wind tunnel where if you yell, the voice of the parent is amplified within the cul-de-sac and the kids can hear it. It's actually a cool side benefit of being on one of those things. <laughs> I didn't know that. I've never noticed. I need to go outside and yell more. Yeah, you, you got to yell from the front door and see if it, it still works. Because I, I, I just remember going to a friend's house and her mom yelling from the front and we could hear her. And I was like, wow, your mom's loud. And they're like, yeah, it, it, it doesn't matter who yells. It, if they yell from there, you, you can hear it. It's the cul-de-sac. I'm like, wow, is that what that is? Wow. Um, so, the, But they can't play. So when who has to be there? The parent has to be there in order for them to play? I don't understand how this works. Yeah, yeah. The parent needs to be outside with them in order for them to play. You know, at five, seven, eight years old within sight of the front window. It's crazy. And, you know, it goes back to the Norman Mailer thing, because just like our kids need to be able to wander and, you know, learn to be strong and think for themselves. You know, our minds need to be able to wander and learn to be strong and think for ourselves and not be threatened by something that's from decades past that's going to hurt our feelings. Right. Because if imagine how much 
less productive we are when we're constantly looking backwards, trying to find things to be offended about. Um, I especially think it's kind of crazy because Norman Mailer has already proven to be, he's a, he's a known entity. So this one essay shouldn't be enough to cancel a new book. It's not like he's not written other books. So he's, he's, it's not like this is his first book and they're like, Oh, we don't know. You know what? We don't know anything about him. It's just to give power to some young person to be able to cancel an older person, which is a fetish I hope that we get over. Um, the link to the, the article on, on Norman Mailer and this crazy story is in the show notes for today's podcast. I always enjoy it when you stop by to chat. I'm so glad to hear your family is doing well in the new year. And just uh, thank you so much, Dave Maschio, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to talk. Great to talk to you, too. And that's Dave Maschio, opinion columnist for USA Today, at Dave Maschio on Twitter. I'm Stacey Washington, and it has been such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for listening into the podcast.